Hello, everybody, and welcome to Flight Deck, an inside look at the New York Jets. I'm your host, Rich Slamini, and I cover the Jets for ESPN. We haven't talked in a while. Since our last chat, the Jets have hired a new coach, Robert Sala. And if you follow me, you know it's a move I really liked, a move I touted. But on this podcast, we're going to look forward to the offseason. It's what everybody's talking about. In this episode, in the second quarter, you're going to meet former Jets offensive lineman Matthew Willig. That name may not ring a bell, but Matt is tackling Hollywood and is now has a recurring role in the new NBC series Young Rock. Rock, of course, being Dwayne The Rock Johnson. Matt, who was a giant on the field at 6'8", plays Andre the Giant in the series. And I'm really looking forward to catching up with Matt in the second quarter. For now, let's look at the big story. Sam Darnold, is he going or is he staying? Honestly, I don't think the Jets know the answer to that yet. I'm telling you, this could go either way. March will be a very telling month because it's when the Jets will do the bulk of their quarterback evaluations, looking at the quarterbacks in the draft. You know, you got four pro days uh, starting on March 12th with Trey Lance at North Dakota State. And at the end of the month, there's Ohio State's pro day with Justin Fields. Uh, and also on uh, the 26th, BYU, you'll get a good look at Zach Wilson. So they'll use this time to gather information and make the best decision they can. I've looked at this from every conceivable angle. I've gone back and forth. I've talked to people in and out of the league. And right now, as we're standing here on February, whatever, late February, I'm leaning towards keeping Sam Darnold. You know, do I think he's going to be an elite quarterback? No. Do I think he's going to be a top 15 quarterback? I don't know that either. I do think he will be improved in this new offense with a new coaching staff. And so you're probably asking why, Rich, would you keep a quarterback who's been the lowest rated passer over the last three years? I got some reasons. So here are my reasons. Number one, he's only 23 and he does have physical talent. And he was the third pick in the draft for a reason. Number two, probably the most important reason, he's an asset. Keeping Darnold allows them to trade down from two to draft other players, non-quarterbacks. Think about it. You know, a few years ago, the Jets traded from six to three, and they had to give up three number two picks. Think about what the Jets could get by trading down. They could come out of it with the future number one pick. That cannot be minimized in this decision-making process. Three, money. Everybody talks about the importance of resetting the financial clock by drafting a rookie at number two. You do save money for sure, but I think the value of the picks that you get in a trade would offset the money that you save by drafting a rookie. Next, number four, I think Darnold gives the Jets the best chance to win in 2021, and I think winning is important. You're coming off a 2-14 and 14 year. You have a new staff, a new coach. He wants to build a winning culture. The best way to do that is by winning. I'm not saying they have to go to the playoffs, but you know a turnaround season would be nice. And I think if you go with a rookie quarterback, you're sacrificing another year. Number five, you know, Darnold has never been in a stable situation. He's always been kind of like this boat on choppy waters. From the moment he's got here, he's been playing for a coach who's been on the hot seat, either Bowles or Gase. Finally, they have calm waters. I'd like to see how he does in that situation. Number six, the gap. We'll call it the gap. I think, well, I, actually, I know 
the front office believes there's a gap between Trevor Lawrence and the next quarterback. And if I'm picking two, that concerns me. I don't want to be in a gap. I want to pick a guy that I'm sure is going to be my franchise quarterback. And I don't think you can say that about any of these quarterbacks not named Trevor Lawrence. Seven, you know, I think we'll focus on Zach Wilson here because I think he's the consensus number two. There's no doubt he can sling it. He can throw the football, but I think there's durability questions. He had shoulder surgery after his freshman year. He's not a solidly built guy. He's probably going to weigh in or check in at 6'2", maybe 6'3". That's a little bit of a concern. Number eight, cupcake schedule. That's what Mel Kuyper calls it. I talked to Mel a few days ago. And he said BYU played more cup, so many cupcakes that they could have been on a sugar high this year. It was a schedule that was altered by the pandemic. They did not face one Power 5 school this year. Go back and look at the tape. There, it was like seven-on-seven seven drills. Vanilla defenses, no tight coverage, guys wide open. In three years as a starter, Zach Wilson played only seven games versus teams that were either in Power 5 conferences or ranked. In those seven games, he went three and four, nine touchdown passes, five interceptions. He really had only one big game out of those seven, and that was against Boise State, which was ranked. This past year, he faced Boise State and Carolina, Coastal Carolina. And on those two teams, there was only one draftable player, a defensive end from Carolina. Uh, only one player on those two teams ranked in the ESPN Top 200. So if I'm a scout, I want to see how he does against draftable defensive players. Can he fit the ball in a tight window when the, so, the DB from Carolina, who let's say is a second or third round prospect, is covering? We didn't see that this year because he only faced one draftable player, and that was a late-round draft pick projection, by the way. So I think he's kind of a one-year wonder. Now, that doesn't mean he won't be a success in the NFL. Joe Burrow was a one-year wonder, but he played at LSU, SEC, National Championship. Totally different. Number nine, this is not a normal year because of the pandemic. Teams have less access to the players, which means less information. I'd be a little hesitant to make a franchise-altering decision without a complete and full dossier of information on a player. And number 10, I mean, this is kind of what I would do here. You know, I wouldn't pick up Darnold's fifth-year option. That's about $19 million. I think that's prohibitive. I would make him play this year, the last year of his rookie deal at $10 million. But I would go out in free agency, and I would sign a legit number two, someone like a Jacoby Brissett or, a, uh, or even a Jameis Winston, an Andy Dalton, someone who could come in and pressure Sam Darnold. I want to see how he reacts to pressure. So that would be important for me. Now, look, this is a tough decision. It could go either way. But if it doesn't work out, I have the ammo next year to go out and get a quarterback. I have two number ones, maybe three, if I could get a future number one by trading down. So you're in position to have quarterback insurance. Uh, also, keeping Darnold on the roster gives you some flexibility coming closer to the draft. What happens if the Houston Texans say two days before the draft, okay, we'll take offers on Deshaun Watson? Well, you can include Darnold in a package then to try to get Deshaun Watson. Uh, so right now, I think Zach Wilson's kind of like a, a new piece of electronic equipment. Everybody wants it because it's the new thing. But are you sure it's an upgrade? You know, uh, Dar uh, true. Darnold has not given us 
any tangible evidence, at least not statistically, that he could be a winning quarterback in the league. You know, so if you're into the statistics, yeah, you'd shy away from keeping him. But, you know, for all the reasons I mentioned, and if it doesn't work out, at least you have the draft picks that you got from the trade down. And that's big. That's big. Now, sure, you can get draft picks by trading Darnold, maybe even a two. But that two won't seem like much if the quarterback you draft turns into a bust and you're looking to replace him in three years. Back in a second. And welcome back. Our special guest this week is a former Jets offensive lineman, Matt Willig, who had a really long career in the NFL. He played for 14 uh, years, six different teams, but we've got him on. We're doing kind of a pop culture crossover here. Matt is now appearing in the new NBC show, Andre, uh, not Andre, Young Rock. He's playing Andre the Giant. It's a really fascinating concept. Matt has really expanded into the world of acting over the last few years, and we're so grateful that he's with us. Matt Willig, thank you so much for joining the podcast. Thanks, Rich. Thanks for having me on. I, I think I've talked to you more since I've retired than when I was actually playing, so it's kind of, it's we, kind of a twist. We did talk a few years ago uh, for, yeah. for a story I did on ESPN.com, and, and so much has happened to you. Uh, congratulations on all your acting success. So this, this is you. a fascinating concept. It's on NBC, Tuesday nights, 8 p.m. You're playing Andre the Giant. We all know the iconic wrestler. I'm just how did you get the role? And if you could describe for the listeners, just, you know, the concept of the show. Sure. So I'll, I'll describe the concept first. Um, it's the story of Dwayne Johnson as a kid. Um, and they do it in three different sections. It's when he was a 10 year old, um, when he's in high school is about a 15 year old. And then when he goes to the university of Miami to play ball, um, at about 18 years old. Um, and so they follow those three, um, alongside those stories is it's the year 2032 and Dwayne is running for president, um, which is a, is a, uh, perhaps foreshadowing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I, you know, I, I'm sure it's got some something in there, but um, yeah, and so in the in the years of when he's a ten year old, um, kind of in the in the early '80s when they were living in Hawaii, um, wrestling, they had the wrestling territory out there, and a lot of guys were around. And being that uh, Dwayne's dad, Rocky Johnson, was a pretty famous wrestler back in the day, he hung out with all these guys, and so uh, literally. Um, Andre and a couple of the other wrestlers were like uncles to Dwayne. And specifically, uh, Andre was someone that uh, Dwayne felt a kinship with, uh, had, a, had a really nice relationship with. Um, one of the first and only real questions I had for Dwayne when I started the role was, tell me the real relationship that you guys had. Mm -hmm. And so he gave me a really nice, uh, detailed, and uh, uh, sweet, you know, uh, version of his relationship, which, which he idolized him in a way and, uh, got a lot of advice from him, which we explore on the show and which we will continue to explore. And so it's been really fun. And I'm going to, I want to get into your, your football career and the jet stuff and any jet memories you right had, but I want to just stay right here for now and with, with the young rock. And so how did you get the role and talk to me about the shooting of it? Did you have to do, and you're a big guy. I don't know if the fans remember, you're, yeah. You were listed at 6'8", 315, so you're, you were seemingly perfect for this role. 
And I heard, but you had to add some weight too for the role, correct? I did. So, so I got the, I got the um, audition for it to go meet with the, uh, the creators of the show within 24 hours of me going. So it was a really quick turnaround, which is, you know, always a little stressful. On top of that, I had to have, uh, I had some, some French dialogue in there. Um, and, and, you know, you have to find that accent that he had, which is not an easy thing to find. Um, so I ended up going and, you know, they say in the business, when you go and you kind of do these things and you sort of know right away, um, whether or not you've, you've reached them, well, you know, you've got, got them a little bit. And I felt like right away, I was the only guy, I was the only choice for them. They had a couple other guys that were taller, but skinny and just didn't have that Andre feel. And I felt like walking in and doing my lines just in the audition, um, the Notchka Khan, our career, one of our co-creators just instantly kind of said, this is our guy. Um, so, and I had booked this like before the pandemic last year, you know, like in January, mm-hmm. we were supposed to start shooting in May. And then obviously because of the, the world, it got postponed and postponed. Finally ended up going to Australia, went to Brisbane, Australia and shot this um, from September through uh, December. I chose myself to put on weight. I felt like I had to have that sort of Andre, you know, you've known a little bit about me. I I tried to keep in relatively good shape. Um, It works for my career and it's just who I am. But I knew that kind of to have that look, that belly, that sort of, you know, he he never worked out. So he always had this sort of body that was just there. It was him. And so I ended up gaining about 35 pounds, which at my age is not anything to, uh, to sneeze at. And, um, I did it sort of slowly and steadily. Uh, we went and we quarantined and that was a whole story getting to just getting into Brisbane at that time in September was a chore. Um, we flew into New Zealand, had to kind of quarantine, stay in one area, then went to uh, Sydney, got to Sydney and had to quarantine for one day over there with armed guards, went straight from the airport, right to our hotel room, locked the door. They couldn't, they wouldn't let us out. Wow. Got picked up the next morning and taken into Brisbane, where we again got shoved into a hotel room for two weeks and had to do a two-week quarantine. Wow! So just getting there and, and and having all that was a bit of a like you know it was. I'm a seasoned guy even now, you know, doing this, but having to do all that was not too many people had done that or or experienced that type of sort of preparation just to get ready. So it was pretty intense. Yeah, that's the part of the glamorous life they know people don't talk about. All the other stuff that, that that's goes what you get. That's what you get paid for. It's the the act. The in between the, the acting stuff is is for free. It's the, all the other stuff. Yeah, I could tell. I watched the first episode. You did have that that belly on going for you there because it, it gets it player, gets bigger. It gets bigger and better as we go along. By the time the wrestling comes around and I have my shirt off, you can definitely see the thirty five pounds. Yeah, because as a player, I know fans might find this hard to believe, but you you are actually you know for a six foot eight guy, you are not. I mean, you were well proportioned. It didn't seem like you were a 300. You were like a, a light 300, if that, yeah, that, that makes I, sense. I, you know, my frame is so big that that uh, that I was able to carry. You know, I I got as big as you know three in the 320s when I played, and that was too big for me. But I, I you know I did that for this. I was literally about 335 pounds, which you know. <laughs> no man in their 50s should have to be that heavy. And uh, so it, it weighed on me towards the end in December and, and it started to get to my knees. And, you know, I was, I was likening it back to, to the end of my football career when, uh, you know, my knees were bothering me every single day. And I sort of had that feeling uh, at the end of this shoot. 
So I got to ask you the fanboy question, kind of question. What's it like working with The Rock? Well, it's a two-part answer. Number one, you know, I had conversations with Dwayne. We saw him over Zoom. Being that we were in Australia and that all his stuff was being shot separately, he was here in the States, in Atlanta. He was finishing up a, a film that's coming out for Netflix. Um, so he was finishing up there. And so basically, we never saw him. He never came to, to Australia. Mm. He was on our Zoom calls, which we did um, mostly when we were in quarantine, which was, a, you know, that was our main, our main lively uh, activity for the day was getting on a Zoom call and seeing everyone. And, uh, you know, listen, I, just even seeing him in Zoom calls and seeing, number one, the passion he had for this project, being that it's his, but the emotional, um, you know, sort of aspect that he still sort of carried. We would finish up... Um, uh, you know, table reads, reading the scripts, and he would become emotional, you know, and, and just, he, he truly does have that uh, gratitude thing, you know, that he really is truly um, grateful for the road that he's taken. And I think it's, uh, you know, as we'll they'll explore this year in, this, in, the, in the season, um, it's crazy what he kind of went through, you know, and the, the vagabond life that he lived as a kid and, and sort of dealing with his dad not being around very much and, um, and, and moving from school to school, from state to state, all those things um, uh, were, were crazy. Like I said, uh, you know, he sent me a really nice note about uh, Andre and, and him, and, and we had had some dealings in the past, him and I, um, he worked out in the same gym with me for a little while. And I, that was when I was just starting out and I kind of had asked him a few times for some advice and things like that. So we had a little bit of a history. And so he was just really excited that we had a chance to work together. Uh, finally, you know, after about a decade or so of, of knowing each other a little bit. And so, it, as you said, it, it's such an iconic role and it just seemed to kind of fit right in my wheelhouse of, uh, of something that I could, uh, really pull off. Well, you guys have the football bond. I mean, he did play, as everybody knows, at the University of Miami. You know, he was yeah. a defensive tackle, I believe, and yes. uh, you, you were on the other side of the ball at USC yeah. and then in the NFL. So uh, any football talk come up between you guys? No, not really. Um, you know, it was funny. He actually, because he knows that I know a few of the wrestlers uh, through the last decade or so, I've been able to meet some of those guys. And so he would refer to me more that way, saying you kind of know the guys and you know that feeling. You know, it was more of, you know, that bond that guys have. Um, that's the way it was back in the eighties, you know, when these guys were living this life where it was territories and, you know, if you're in a territory, you were dealing with the same guys on and off. And back then, you know, the wrestling days, they tried to keep their persona the whole time. You know, it was like they came off the stage and they became someone else or their true selves. They tried to keep that persona the whole time. You know, guys like the Iron Sheik, they were, they were pissing and moaning all, you know, the whole, the whole time, you know, and, and, and the, uh, the thugs of the deal were, that's how they acted. So that was sort of what he was trying to get across to me. He goes, yeah, I know, you know, that feeling of, of having the camaraderie, number one, and number two, kind of dealing with that as the team aspect. So that part was cool. Interesting. And so, so the show premiered last week. I mean, this is, this was a big deal. I mean, this is an NBC, you know, big show without, you know, a huge star and Dwayne Johnson. So what's it been like for you, uh, since the show premiered, uh, I, I, you've been doing a lot of media, I presume. What's what's life been like since this uh, Young Rock premiered? You know, I, I'm, I'm fortunate, Rich, that as you know, um, having been in the NFL for a while and, and now have been doing 
this, you know, uh, the acting world for a while as well. Uh, I'm not impressed by too much, or at least not too many things, you know, uh, wow me, I guess. But but this, you know, with the NBC machine, um, having it be a primetime show, um, and uh, again, uh, having them sort of uh, realize that Andre's character, um, people were excited about. Um, I saw in the last couple of weeks, and even when the show was getting ready to air, that um, uh, the popularity of Andre and, and, and what that meant was sort of coming up. And that was kind of, it was, it was exciting. It was exciting to be honest with you. You know, I, I had some, some reviews that were uh, critically successful and, and, and guys were saying that, that my character was not only, you know, right on, but later on you'll see uh, I had some soulful moments and some, some uh, soft and tender moments in dealing with, uh, with the, the, the 10 year old Dewey, as they say, um, I have, a, I have a, a, an episode coming up in episode six. It's called My Day with Andre. That's the name of the episode. And it's basically, it's, it's Dwayne and I as a 10-year-old, me sort of taking him for the day. And we go out and um, I try to teach him some life lessons, you know, that he's struggling with. And in turn, um, he sort of teaches me a little life lesson as well about how, how can Andre live in, in a world where he's so big. So it's really kind of that thing that's really been really cool to not only during the shooting, I realized that it was going to be fun, but to now have it have a little bit of critical, uh, you know, positive reviews and, and things like that. You know, the, like I said, the NBC machine, there's so much video and so much cool shots out there of me as Andre that I'm, I, even I'm getting a little sick of it. So <laughs> it's, uh, I think it's really cool. And I'm, I'm very happy for your success and, and the listeners. I mean, you have done a lot of stuff. I mean, movies and TV shows, I, I you know, just to mention a couple you were in the movie Concussion. Since we're a sports podcast, I'll, I'll focus in on that a little bit because that was about the NFL and the concussion crisis and what they went through. And you played the former, the late Pittsburgh Steeler offensive lineman, Justin Strelzik, who, you know, tragically dies, uh, as we later find out, who from CTE. And I, I, I'm wondering if, you know, at being a football player and playing that role and maybe knowing some people in your life who suffered from brain trauma, what was that like for you to play that role? It was an emotional, it was an emotional time. It really was just for the reasons you mentioned. Um, number one, um, you know, a story just came out recently about the, the SC uh, linebacking crew uh, back when I played um, at SC, you know, in the late 80s, uh, Junior Seau, Scott Ross, uh, good friend of mine. These are all guys that I lived with and played with um, who have passed away. And a couple of them from um, what is later to be found CTE. So uh, number one, it, it, it personally meant a lot uh, to get the job. Uh, it was a funny you know, thing. Again, you go back to the auditioning process. Um, I don't think they were expecting much. I think they just wanted to have a few football players come in, even though they knew I could act. But uh, even in the audition, I... Um, it was a scene where I cried, you know, and because I felt that emotion, I felt the realistic way of, of how Justin may have felt and how um, my friends might have felt. So that part was emotional. Um, just shooting it, you know, and, and sort of uh, part of my scenes were with Justin struggling, you know, him struggling and, and seeing his sort of his mind sort of falter and, and get worse and worse. Um, and, uh, that played, you know, and it was, so it was really cool. I got to meet, um, Justin's, uh, widow, uh, meet his son. 
there were some crazy similarities. You know, uh, we had the same birthday, his son and I, and and I rode his motorcycle during the, um, the movie. And so just really cool getting to know her. She gave me all kinds of... Uh, papers and he was an artist and he, he wanted to act one day. And so there was similar similarities there, excuse me. So again, it was, it's a long way of saying it, it was really an emotional uh, shoot. Really, really proud to be a part of it. And just lightening the mood for a second. And you're also in a very popular movie, which I love. I think it's a great comedy. We are the, we're the Millers. You were, yeah. you played the one eye Mexican, uh, yeah drug lord uh you know there so that that's a totally different departure from uh you know from a serious movie like concussion what was that like that of course starred jennifer aniston and um jason sudeikis and jason sudeikis right yeah it it, that was it was you know you you say that when these kind of movies come out and, and it looks like fun well it is and it was you know that was just a lot of fun to shoot um jennifer couldn't have been sweeter to me you know and it was funny that my first day on set there was Jennifer's sort of strip tease that she does. Mm-hmm. And uh, in the script, uh, she comes over to me and does a little bit of a dance, you know, first before she moves on. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm like, what a first day. This is unbelievable. Well, yeah. I get a knock on my trailer about 20 minutes before we're supposed to go on and do this. And they said, hey, there's been a slight change. Um, she's not going to dance on you anymore. And I was like, wait a minute, man, this is my, this is my, <laughs> I was going to take my shot. Yeah. But, uh, but no, a lot of fun to shoot. Um, That's Hollywood, right? <laughs> it is Hollywood. Yeah. That was just a great, like kind of an R comedy, you know, I had some of that rockiness in there and yeah. um, it was cool to be a part of. Well, let's talk football. You played with the Jets from uh, right out of SC. You signed as an undrafted free agent and uh, from 92 to 95, a very interesting time in Jet history. Um, you know, 95, not a good year. But, you know, they had some success a little earlier than that. But uh, what was it like? What are some of your fondest memories of being with the Jets during that time? It, you know, it was my first team. So there's always going to be a bit of uh, nostalgia about, about it. And um, being away, excuse me, being away from, from L.A. where I grew up for the first time and being as far east as I could, you know, in, in a strange land, so to speak, um, was was eye-opening you know back then we didn't have uh google maps or anything on the on your car so just getting around from long island into the city out to new jersey all that stuff was frightening for about a year that's one of the first things i remember but i remember you know the front office and and, and the people around the office I, i really do i remember people that were just so sweet and friendly um people that i kind of follow on facebook and we every now and then you know talk to and and it's just, uh, it's the people that I remember more about anything, you know, offensive line wise, you were one of the first guys that, you know, media wise, I remember, you know, having angst against, you know, it was the Jeff Criswells who hated you. And there was the Dave Cadigans and there was the guys like that, that you were, you were doing honest reporting and, and saying things that weren't as uh, popular, I guess especially in the locker room anyway. And uh, so I was just young enough to kind of sit back and watch it all. And um, I did have a little episode with uh, Criswell and Cadigan um, yeah. that one year, I think it was 93, but yeah. 
Um, yeah, and I was there for that, and, and I remember it distinctly. And, and, you know, my locker was right next to Jim Sweeney, who I'll forever be grateful for to have that experience and, and, and you know, sitting next to a guy who had done it all at that point and just a classy, classy old-school football dude. And um, so, yeah, there's some pretty good memories. You know, I, even when you talk about the, the the staff, you know, with Pepper Burris and Joe Patton is a guy I'm still friends with. And uh, then you go into the equipment room and you talk about uh, uh, Senior and, 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 and his sons and, and all those people, you know. Um, yeah. Mickey Mickey Rendine, is that his name? Yeah, Mickey Rendine. He passed Mickey away Rendine. a few years ago. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, you remember, you remember that personality and Jets fans may not know, but you talk about a locker room, you know, back in that time, sort of, uh, it, it was pretty fun. You played for three different coaches. I mean, you had uh, Bruce Coslett, Pete Carroll and uh, Rich Cotite. And yeah. you know, of course, Pete goes on to have great success at your alma mater and then yeah. and goes to win a Super Bowl, uh, you know, in Seattle. So what a career is he? I loved Pete. I, I um, you know, I came, as you said, I came in as a defensive lineman and, um, and was obviously too slow and, and uh, the wrong skin color. I hope I'm not offending anybody. I, you know, I was just a white, slow kid being six, seven, playing, trying to play defensive end. You know, it was, it, 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 it sort of set the tone for my career. And although I played a long time and I was absolutely very thankful to have a long career, it set the tone as far as I was always going to be behind the eight ball being an undrafted free agent. You know, they were always looking to replace me. And um, uh, whereas Bruce and, and even Pete especially uh, really liked me and, and were really, you know, in that mode of developing me into a, a decent player, uh, then Rich Kotai came in and just did not like me uh, for some reason. You know, maybe because I was a little vocal, I like to have a little more fun than, than than most guys. I just didn't fit in with his system, and he, you know, he benched me, and there were some things that went on in it. And so I think that that went on. I went to Atlanta, and I had like another couple of head coaches, June Jones, and then uh, Dan Reeves, and so that kind of followed me through my playing for a lot of different head coaches. Where, um, you know, as you know, someone who's been covering it for a long time, um, unless you're that first round pick or that guy, you know, it's it can be a struggle. It can be a struggle trying to to break in and stay there. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's tough when you're an undrafted guy. But so you had a long career, 14 years. You did win a Super Bowl ring with with uh, St. Louis in 99. Although I don't I don't think you played that year, but you did get we on the yeah. practice. You got the ring. Well, it was it was one of those, it, it, you know, it's why I hold um, my other Super Bowl appearance with the Carolina Panthers um, probably more dearly than I do the Rams. And I hate saying that only because um, I wasn't playing. I was a backup uh, who came in as an insurance policy, you know, and was never needed. And it was tough. It was a tough year to sit. Uh, I'll tell a quick story real quick. I was sitting in the locker room before the um, Super Bowl game, and I've told the story before. And it was really tough sitting there, seeing the guys getting dressed for the Super Bowl. I had never been, and I, you know, it was just that was my first experience. And I was so wide-eyed, um, even having played now, I think, eight, nine years. Um, and Dick Vermeil walks up to me and sits down and he says, look, I just want to tell you, I, I know you're frustrated. I know this has been a tough year for you. We couldn't have done some of the things that we've done and you couldn't have put the pressure on the guys that were ahead of you. You know, we, we wouldn't be that same team and thank you for being here. Thank you for being a part of this. Um, I, you know, he specifically said, I, 
and, and, and very proud that you're here and happy that you were here and happy to experience this with us. And so that was how, that, that was who Dick Vermeule was, number one. Mm-hmm. And that was kind of all it took for me to sort of, you know, have, have a little bit of a smile about, uh, about the situation, even though I wasn't on the field and wasn't playing. What a, what a classy guy, uh, Dick Vermeule. Uh, I met him on a couple of occasions, really, really classy guy. Uh, so just in closing, Matt, just so how do you go, what was the impetus to get you into acting? Like, how did you make the transition, you know, from football into acting? The, the funny one line story is that I'm the fifth of six boys and I was just trying to, you know, fit in somewhere. But, um, you know, I started hosting a couple of shows throughout my career, you know, even starting with uh, Criswell had a show that I started doing some radio stuff. And then as my career went on, I, I was hosting some TV and some radio stuff. Um, when I went to the 49ers, I was ho- helping host a show, a weekly show for them and just was comfortable in front of the camera. Um, um, my brother's girlfriend at the time had suggested, Hey, you know, you should think about going into acting, just try it. Um, she knew an agent who dealt with a lot of ex athletes. Mm -hmm. And so I tried it out. Excuse me. I have uh, some trouble coming in. Um, I had, uh, spoken with this agent and he put me in a commercial in the off season in fact, the first commercial I ever did was uh, a Campbell's Soup commercial with Kurt Warner in it. It was oh. just after the Super Bowl, and that was my first spot. So for the fight, I did that. Uh, that was the first audition I ever went on. And so I just started doing some auditions um, for commercials in my offseason. And I did that my last three or four years in the NFL, maybe four or five years, actually, and was having good success. It was really nice to kind <clears> of... <throat> I've come home from football and, and, and go do, you know, six or seven commercials or four or five commercials in the off season. So that's how it started. And then when I retired, I just wasn't sure what, what to do. I, I uh, you know, as you, I was in that sort of tweener time, you know, play 14 years in NFL. I didn't make so much money that I, I could just retire. What's a guy like me going to do? And so I was kind of in between continuing the acting, see where that goes, or maybe even getting into the broadcast booth or maybe even a sideline report, you know, kind of, I wanted to take over, uh, doing some sideline stuff, mm-hmm. but, uh, but I, but I was already into the acting. So I, I started doing that and doing it full time. And then again, I started having uh, some early success be, doing bit parts and things and, and got into acting class and started working my butt off. And I've been really fortunate, Rich, really. I mean, I think it's, it's obvious listening to the story, but um, I really have, I, I've worked hard and I've kind of not taken no for an answer, so to speak. I've always said, why not me? You know, why can't I be the guy who does it? Um, and it's worked out pretty well for me. And, and uh, to have now a just as long of a career in this uh, that I did in football, I'm pretty proud of. All right, I'm going to put you on this spot. So give me your one starstruck moment where you ran into like a, some, an actor or a celebrity where you were, you were just like starstruck. Even though, even though now you're established in the industry, but there was yeah. that one moment where you were starstruck. Uh, I would, uh, the first thing that comes to mind, and there's probably a couple, uh, I would say Bruce Willis. I was a huge fan and still am a huge fan of Bruce Willis. And I got to do a commercial with him early on in my career. And I was one of, again, it was, we were kind of a, uh, a football sort of team and he did, it was a commercial that he did for Japan. So it didn't even show here, mm-hmm. but, uh, I was one of the, what they called basically 
you know, the main guys. And then there was probably about 15 other guys that were just extras and everybody was vying for his attention and this and that. And I was just so starstruck, but I had that feeling of don't bother the guy. And we ended up having a, a, a moment or two during the shoot where I was just like, you know, that was pretty cool. Mm-hmm. You know, that was really a nice moment. And uh, he still is one of my favorites meeting Will Smith for the first time. And um, that was, that was very, very cool. So those are a couple of uh, instances. That, of course, from Concussion. Yes. And, uh, so this is great. Well, his name is Matt Willig, and the show is called Young Rock. You should definitely check it out on Tuesdays at 8 p.m. on NBC. Uh, it's funny, but it's also really informative, you know, because you're learning a lot about a man's career, you know, an iconic actor like Dwayne The Rock Johnson. And I know I learned a lot of stuff I didn't even know. And, of course, Matt is playing the iconic wrestler Andre the Giant, and, you know, it sounds like you got a, a couple a couple of really neat episodes coming up, especially the one in, in episode six. So I'm really looking forward to that. Matt, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Rich, always a pleasure to talk to you. And uh, thank you for the support over the years. And um, let's see how those Jets do next year, man. I'm looking forward to a little bit of a bump. All right, I know you've been waiting for the Twitter mailbag, and uh, thank you again for all the questions. We're going to start it off with uh, a question from at Uncle Bando 35 who asks, can you pick two free agents, one on each side of the ball, you think the Jets will target this offseason, given positional needs, scheme fit, and players' demand on the market? Well, I, I think two. I'm going to mention two guys on offense. I think who will be in their sights, and that's Will Fuller, the wide receiver from Houston. He's uh, he's a burner. He can get deep. He's a good yards after catch guy, uh, which is what they're looking for. Does have some injuries in his history and had a PED a suspension last year, but uh, I think they're looking at him. And I I would keep an eye again on Joe Tooney uh, from the Patriots. They were going to go after him last year. He got tagged. I still think. He could be on their radar. And on defense, I know everyone's looking at Richard Sherman because of the obvious connection to Robert Sala. I think they'll have some interest in Sherman, but he's 33. He's coming off an injury. And and frankly, I think he'll probably want to go to a team that's closer to competing for a playoff spot. I think a guy to watch will be Rasul Douglas, the corner from Carolina. Joe Douglas is very familiar with him. He drafted him in Philadelphia. And, uh, you know, he's only 27 years old. He played a lot for the Panthers last year. I think he could be a guy to watch. Next question from at T underscore Delgado 24. The Shanahan LaFleur scheme is run heavy. So how aggressively will the Jets approach the running back position? Well, right now they need a running back. One, they have Ty Johnson. They have LaMichael Pirine. I don't think either one of them are a running back starter. So they have to look for someone. But aggressively, I don't think you're going to see big money spent, and I don't think you're going to see a high draft pick. Now, check this out. Last three seasons in San Francisco, where LaFleur obviously came from, the last three leading rushers for them, Jeff Wilson, Raheem Mostert, Matt Breida. What do they have in common? All undrafted free agents. I mean, the classic Shanahan hidden gem, Terrell Davis in Denver under Mike Shanahan, a sixth-round draft pick, goes on to the Football Hall of Fame. This year in Green Bay under Matt LaFleur, Aaron Jones, great running back, fifth-round pick. 
It's about the system. I don't think you'll see the Jets spending big money or using a draft pick high on a running back. At Southern Jet NC, I hear rumors of releasing Crowder and saving cap money and then drafting a slot receiver. What are the names that you're hearing about? He mentions the 49ers, Brandon Ayuk, as being uh, the kind of guy they should be looking for. And he says, I'm hearing Daz Newsom. Daz Newsom, of course, is a uh, Tar Heel. But, uh, you know, Crowder, I think, is uh, slightly on the bubble. My gut tells me he will be back, although I won't, I won't commit to it 100%. If they cut him, they save a big chunk of change, $10.4 million for cutting him. But if they do, I don't think they would draft a replacement. It's a very difficult position to learn in this offense. I think they would go with a veteran. A guy to keep an eye on is uh, from San Francisco, Kendrick Bourne. He's only 26 years old. He knows the system. He's been in it. And I think he would be a moderately affordable type guy if they want to replace Crowder. Next, from at Matt Romano 19, Joe Douglas will definitely look to upgrade wide receiver this offseason. I agree, Matt. Do you think wide receiver is a possibility at the number two pick, or do you think it's more realistic we pick uh, if we trade back a few spots? Well, let me say this. If the Jets pick at number two, notice I said if, it will be a quarterback. If they are not taking a quarterback, they will trade back. And so I think receivers definitely in play. Two is really high for uh, uh, for a wide receiver. In fact, I did some research. The last wide receiver to go number two, all the way back to 2007 with Calvin Johnson, a.k.a. Megatron. Obviously, that worked out. He's in the Hall of Fame now. But in recent years, since 07, only three players in the top four, Amari Cooper, Sammy Watkins, A.J. Green, all different levels of success. You know, obviously, Sammy's had some up and down. So it's not a position you normally draft in the top five, but I do think Joe Douglas will look heavily at that spot. Jamar Chase, Devontae Smith, and let's not forget about Jalen Waddle, who's really, really good also at Alabama. Next and last question for Matt Sports underscore Fiend, was Sam Darnold on the cusp of being traded this offseason? What is your favorite Sam Darnold moment, either on or off the field? My moment comes off the field. It was the night of his first start, Monday night game, 2018, at Detroit. Of course, he throws that pick six on his first pass, rallied, had a good game. The Jets win in a blowout. They're 1-0, believe it or not, the only time over 500 in the Darnold era. And after the game, I staked out outside the locker room, and I was with Darnold's parents. And when he walked out of the locker room with Josh McCown, who, of course, was like Sam's big brother, you know, I saw the hugs. His mom was very emotional and teary. He hugged his mom. He hugged his dad. And he just and I recorded the whole thing. I've posted it on Twitter. I think it went viral. It was just a really cool moment. This 21-year-old who was 1-0 as an NFL quarterback, he had kind of a smile on his face, and he said to his dad, that was really fun. And at that moment, if you're a Jets fan, you're thinking, boy, this is going to be great. We've got our guy. And as we know, it hasn't turned out to be great. The NFL is a cruel, cruel, cold business and things change quickly. Back after this. And this is the fourth quarter, and I want to wrap it up with this 
as we head into free agency in a couple of weeks, I remember something Joe Douglas said at the end of the 2019 season when the Jets foolishly thought they were on the way to something good. They won a few games at the end of the year. They finished 7-9, and nine, and Joe Douglas told us the day after the season, I want to build the best culture in sports. Obviously, that has not happened. They went 2-14. and 14. It was a mess. They fired their coaching staff, and they're starting over. And I bring this up as we head into free agency because I think they can't underestimate the value of winning. They need to put some guys in the locker room who've been there and done that. Guys who won in the league. I can't tell you how important that is. I remember in 98 when Bill Parcells was coaching the Jets, he brought in Brian Cox as a free agent, an older type guy. But you know what? He he galvanized the locker room. He was a leader. He showed those guys how to win. And the Jets don't have any proven winners in the locker room. In fact, I just checked the roster. They don't have anyone under contract who's ever played in a Super Bowl. They only have five guys, by my count, that have appeared in playoff games with other teams. Crowder, Fant, Franklin Myers, Griffin, and Greg Van Roten. Those are the only guys who have been even to the playoffs. So when you're going out in free agency, I think, and I know Joe Douglas will put an emphasis on this, leadership, intangibles. That's why guys like Richard Sermon and Joe Tooney, they've been with winning teams. They've won championships. I think I'd almost be willing to pay a little extra to get guys in like that in the locker room. I think there's a value for that. And the Jets, there's just such a leadership void in the locker room right now. And coaching can only do too, so much. And Robert Sala, he wants to build a winning culture. Well, get winners in the locker room. So I want to see them do that. I know Joe Douglas wants to do that. You saw it in last year's draft. I think almost every guy they drafted was a team captain in college. Well, I think you'll see that same approach in free agency. And that's a wrap for this week. I want to thank our guest, Matt Willig, who's now appearing in Young Rock on NBC. That's Tuesdays at 8 o'clock. You should check it out, the X-Jets lineman. Also want to thank my producer, Jeff Scopin. You can get... You can get Flight Deck wherever you get your podcasts, either Spotify, Apple, Google Play, or on any of the ESPN platforms. Thanks for checking in this week. We'll be back real soon on Flight Deck.